This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, our hot question of the day today comes to us courtesy of Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, that Mark Zuckerberg. And it has nothing to do with Facebook, actually. He posted on Instagram and he showed a picture of something. And essentially, the picture is of this box that's got like a faint light that kind of glows just from underneath it. And he calls it the sleep box. He created it, he said, for his wife so that she wouldn't be disrupted in the middle of the night wondering what time it was and if she was going to have to get up soon with her kids who always get up between 6 and 7 a.m. So the, the box actually emits that light between 6 and 7 a.m. So then she knows if she wakes up and the light is there that, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to be getting up soon. Apparently, he says this is great and it's allowed her to sleep through the night. I myself have questions. Like, have these people never heard of a clock radio? Because that also does the same thing. But other sleep experts have weighed in and said this is really good for your body. It's a very gentle way of letting your body know that it's time to wake up. So we wanted to know today for our hot question of the day, how many hours do you sleep every night? Because he's saying this sleep box now allows her to get a full night of sleep. So like seven, eight hours. And we thought, well, is that what everybody else is getting too? How many hours of sleep do you get in each night? Do you sleep less than six hours? six to seven hours, seven to eight hours, more than eight hours? Like, what is your sleep level like? Check out our hot question of the day online. You can go to Sarah 980 on Twitter. You can also go to at CKNW and let us know. Now, the recommended sleep time for adults, you know, between the ages of essentially 18 to 64 is between seven and eight hours. Like, that's what you're supposed to be getting. If you have teenagers, and I know we all complain about teenagers wanting to sleep all day, the truth is they need to. They're supposed to be getting like nine to 10 hours of sleep every night. Uh, And when the kids are younger, they should be getting even more sleep than that. But as we get older, we kind of settle in between that seven and eight hour range. But I know a lot of people who monitor their sleep on their Fitbit or whatever their, you know, fitness tracking devices. And so you should know, if you have one of those, how many hours of sleep that you get at nighttime. And people are not probably getting what they think they're getting. You may be lying in bed for those hours. Doesn't mean you're actually asleep for those hours. So we want to know, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Uh, Let me know. You can email me as well, simi at cknw.com. You can also use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. I am a seven, seven and a half hour a night person, up to eight if I'm really, really tired. But you know what? I am like out like a light at 10.30, generally wake up at like 6.20, 6.30 without the alarm. My alarm, knock wood, never goes off because it's like, boom, I am awake at that time. So yeah, seven, seven and a half, maybe eight if I'm really tired. And that's it. Like I am out like a light and I sleep solidly, but I'm very lucky that way. A lot of other people aren't like that. So you tell me, how many hours of sleep do you get every night for our hot question of the day? Check it out online. We said to our residents very clearly that it would cost a little bit more for policing. Um, I think everybody recognized that, and they recognize that whether it's the RCMP or our um, city police force. All right, so that is Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum there talking about the potential cost for a Surrey Police Department. And I guess what it's going to come down to is your definition of a little bit more. He has consistently said 10% or so, but... 
Uh, that is not what one Surrey councillor and others think, and she's speaking out about that. So all of this is likely to be part of a discussion at Surrey Council at a meeting that they're having today. But it does beg the question, is it time for a reality check in Surrey? The councillor that we're talking about here is Linda Annis. Uh, she is not a part of the mayor's coalition of Sur- um, Safe Surrey. Uh, she is the one lone councillor who is not a part of that. And she says the numbers that are being floated when it comes to policing in Surrey just do not add up. Now, there is this report that has been prepared by Surrey that is making its way to the provincial government. It is supposed to lay out the plan, the timing, and the outline of what a Surrey police department would look like. But we still don't know what's in that report, and neither do the councillors. So we wanted to talk more with Councillor Linda Annis about her comments about what this could potentially cost Surrey residents. And she had a chance to join us a few minutes ago to give us her thoughts on this. Well, Councillor Annas, thank you so much for joining us on this topic today. Now, you say that there is absolutely no way a Surrey Police Department will cost just 10% more than the RCMP. Why do you say that? Well, for a couple of reasons, or actually several reasons for that matter. First of all, when you transition to a, a municipal force, municipal police officers earn more. There also are certain contractual arrangements so that just based on the Vancouver model, we would need to staff up likely as much as 300 officers. In addition to that, there's other things that need to be taken into consideration, more cars, more uniforms, um, the IT, how are we going to pay for the shared resources, things like IHIT, CFSEU, our 911 call center, and those are just to name a few of the things. Okay, and you say as much as 300 officers. Where where are you getting that uh, estimate from? So if you look at the size of uh, Vancouver, the population of Vancouver, uh, they currently have just over 1,400 officers. Uh, Surrey is roughly 85% uh, of the size of Vancouver, and currently we have 830-some-odd uh, officers. So uh, just looking at those numbers alone, uh, that's where I'm getting the 300 from. And, of course, not taking into consideration that Surrey is much larger than Vancouver. It's the size of Vancouver, Burnaby, and Richmond combined. And, you know, we have a lot of geographic area to cover in addition to that. So you feel, do you feel that the numbers then that are being presented uh, by the mayor, do you feel that they're not realistic? We've not seen any numbers yet from the mayor in terms of how many uh, officers would be hired or what the size of the police force would be. We've had very little information uh, coming forward uh, to provide us with any guidance in terms of what the Surrey Police Office or, or Surrey Police is going to look like. Right, but we have heard the mayor say that he expects the increase to be about 10%. I don't believe that that's possible. Um, just even if you were to uh, transition with the same number of officers to start, it's still not possible. There's more than a 10% pay differential between the RCMP members and municipal police officers. So what have you heard then about this report that is supposed to be going to the province? Uh, it's supposed to be going to the province soon. Uh, I don't know exactly when. We've not yet seen the report, so I really can't comment on. I know the mayor's original goal was to get it um, to the hands of Minister Farnworth by April 30th. Uh, I'm not sure if that's still his plan or not. Now, you're the, the lone kind of councillor on Surrey Council that is not part of the mayor's coalition. How has that impacted you during this process? Uh, not uh, 
in any really significant way. Um, I think my voice is being heard. I'm trying to uh, reach out and speak on behalf of the public in Surrey and express any concerns that have been expressed to me. And I know one of the big concerns is is the lack of public engagement. Things like changing police forces can't be done in secrecy. We have to be open and transparent. And we have to let the people know how this is going to make them feel safer and at what cost, how much is their taxes going to go up. And so what would you like to see happen as part of this process? I'd like to see public engagement. I think the people need have every right to know what is it going to cost them, how much are their taxes going to go up, and, and how, by switching to a municipal police force, are they going to feel safer? Do you Are you confident, though, that this is on schedule? Is this actually going to happen? Uh, I've not seen the report yet, so I can't comment. Uh, you know, the first state stage of the process is uh, for it to go to Victoria, then the provincial government needs to sign off on it before we can move forward. Now, what have you heard, Councillor Ennis, from Surrey residents, though? Like, do they, are they willing to spend that money, in your opinion? Like, do you think they're okay with it costing more than 10% of an increase, or do you think there are concerns? I think there are concerns, and I think it's a bit of the unknown, not knowing how much your taxes are going to go up. Your taxes may go up $100, $200, $500. We don't know, and it's hard to make a decision not knowing what the financial impact is going to be on you and your family, and how is it going to make you feel safer. So how many officers do you think Surrey does need? Well, I think we need another 300. I think um, ultimately um, I would like to see about 1,200 in Surrey, which is a little bit more than that. But uh, uh, And we need to be increasing the size of the force as the population grows in Surrey. Currently we're growing at about 10,000 residents per year. And this past year um, the council did not approve any additional um, members, so we're already starting at a deficit. So that's a huge number of an increase, right? What, what, what is Surrey at right now in terms of number of officers? We're at about just under 840 officers. So you're saying at least like 350 new officers that would staff it up to the level of, say, what Vancouver is staffed at? That's correct, yes. And that's not taking into account the ge- geographic um, uh, disparity either because Surrey is so much bigger than Vancouver. It's as big as Vancouver, Richmond, and uh, Burnaby combined, and in order to re- uh, to improve response times, if that indeed is a concern, uh, then we need to have uh, even more members than that. Now, we've heard of quite a few shootings happening in Surrey in the last few weeks. Do you think that if this does happen, if you can get that staffed up to, say, 1,200 officers, will that help? Will people feel safer? That's not going to resolve the current gang problem. The current gang problem is not only in Surrey. Uh, there was a shooting in New West um, a few days ago, Vancouver. Uh, it's happening in all of our communities. Um, just the size of Surrey, uh, it, you know, unfortunately, we've had, had our share for sure, but changing uniforms isn't going to solve the gang problem. All right. So then do you, is this a worthwhile exercise? Like, are you in support of this? I want to see what it looks like before I make a decision, and it goes back to being open and transparent, and I want to be able to talk to the citizens of Surrey and find out what do they want, because in the end of the day, I represent them. All right, Councillor Annis, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Have a good day.
That's Linda Annis. She's a Surrey City Councillor representing Surrey First. So she's not part of the Mayor's Coalition. She's the only kind of lone opposition councillor on Surrey Council. And she is raising concerns about the march towards the Surrey Police Department. You know, we're pretty good at recycling here in BC. And I think a lot of us are proud of that. In fact, we have one of the highest recycling rates for beverage containers in North America. And we have good access to recycling programs as well. Government stats show that overall, 93% of households in Canada have access to at least one form of a recycling program, and the vast majority of us use them. But what happens after you put those items in the yellow bag or the blue bin and you put them at the curb? I mean, we think, hey, we've done our part, right? We feel pretty good about that. Look at that. We sorted and did everything properly and put it all out there. But... Increasingly, finding a market for those recyclables is difficult, and that means less of that material is actually being recycled after it leaves our homes. Global News has been doing a series on this. You can find it on the website, globalnews.ca, but we also wanted to talk more about this with the help of our guest, Tony Walker, who's an assistant professor at the School for Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University. Tony, thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning or uh, good afternoon, actually. I'm in uh, Halifax. Ah, yes. Good afternoon to yeah. you. Good morning for us. Let's talk about recycling here. Are we uh, are we not as good at recycling as we used to be because of the problem of finding a market for these recyclables? Well, I guess we think we're, uh, we're fairly good at recycling. But, uh, yeah, it's been based around a, uh, a kind of a recycling model uh, which uh, relies on us putting it in a blue bag. Um, any material that can be recycled domestically, which isn't a, a great amount, to be perfectly honest, the rest was shipped overseas. And uh, the big market for, for our overseas um, uh, recyclable materials was China up until uh, about 15 months ago and uh, un- until they banned it. And uh, that set uh, everybody um, uh, scurrying around in North America, particularly here in Canada. Uh, municipalities were struggling then to find uh, suitable markets for this material. So why did China ban it? Why don't they want this stuff anymore? Well, that's a good question. Um, so for uh, for a couple of decades, they've been uh, taking uh, recyclable materials, primarily plastics, uh, from the developed world uh, to feed into uh, its manufacturing industry because, of course, that's the recycled plastics uh, featured very heavily in the materials they were making for the rest of the world for, for them to export. And, of course, they were relying on material that was clean and uh, of high grade so they could recycle that and make it into new stuff. Uh, but recently, the, uh, with the China sword, um, the government has come up with the initiative to make China's economy move towards a greener and more high-tech rather than um, manufacturing. So really, essentially, it doesn't need our material anymore. And um, it can any manufacturing it still will do in the future, it can handle that with its own uh, internal domestic capacity. Okay, and we obviously do not have, I guess, the domestic capacity to process this material ourselves? Well, we have some recycling facilities dotted around Canada, but certainly uh, they, they don't even come close to being able to uh, process the material that we generate. And uh, we've kind of been uh, lulled into this false sense of recycling uh, security because uh, no matter what we consume, what we uh, uh, think we're recycling, 
you know, if we couldn't deal with it uh, domestically, we were shipping it overseas. And that's become a real uh, challenge now that the uh, China door has been closed to us. Uh, temporarily, uh, for the last uh, 15 months, we've been trying to get it to other uh, Southeast Asian markets. And more and more, they're uh, uh, closing their doors to uh, outright bans, uh, such as India, or they've come up with a phased approach and only accepting really high quality material or uh, are going to be banning it in the near future. So, yeah, essentially, we, we can't really ship it overseas so then um, what's, anymore. What's happening yeah. to all of this stuff that we're putting in our bins? We're stockpiling it. And uh, in, depending on your jurisdiction, uh, a lot of that is now going to landfills. And, and we also, um, when these things were screened uh, fairly carefully by uh, recycling facilities, if it was contaminated with uh, food items or other types of plastics, then it was diverted into uh, the landfill stream and only good uh, high-quality material was supposedly sent off to, uh, uh, for shipping. But now uh, we are struggling, and, and that's why um, you know, Canada at the federal level has got a zero-plastic waste strategy uh, that it wants to implement, and uh, you know, people like yourself are talking about this issue because we're landfilling a lot of this material. I think people would be really upset to find that out, Tony, to know that we're going to all this trouble of like rinsing these containers and washing them and putting them in the right bins and bags and all that kind of stuff. And so what good is that? Well, um, in theory, if we had uh, domestic capacity, then it would be great if we could recycle 100% of all the materials we use in packaging here in Canada. Hopefully that would create jobs and, uh, you know, uh, drive the economy. But it still would perpetuate the, uh, you know, uh, single use mentality and uh, culture. Uh, what would be uh, better if we uh, reduced and uh, used less? And I think that also needs to be a strategy that moves uh, in parallel with uh, increasing our domestic capacity to recycle. Right. So you're saying we felt okay about all this stuff that we were using because we thought we were recycling it all. That's right. We were putting it in the blue bin, putting it on the curbside, and then high-fiving each other because we were so green, allegedly. Um, but that's not the case. And so, yeah, it, it's a massive wake-up call, not only for consumers, but the uh, the, the manufacturing industry, uh, food retailers, and just anything that uh, we purchase as products either comes in some form of packaging material, whether it be cardboard or plastic. And, uh, you know... But from industry to uh, to consumers, we're really going to have to change we uh, uh, purchase goods and, uh, and and transport goods around the world. Right. You so, know whether that's through seeking alternatives or, or or do do without. So Tony, why can't this stuff be recycled? Like, why aren't we building plants, or why why aren't people building companies that can recycle this stuff? Yeah, that, that's another good question. So, for example, if uh, we had all of the beverage bottles in uh, North America were clear plastic, that would be wonderful because we could put thousands of them in the same bin and we'd be uh, confident they'd be all made of the same material. But the bottles have dyes in them and different uh, 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 packages have different uh, uh, plastic types and polymers in there. So it becomes a bit of a, um, a, a complex mixture and it makes it invariably difficult for recycling facilities to, to handle it because they don't know what's in it. So we have our plastics are too, there's too much variety then in our plastics. There is. And I think uh, one way forward to, to help get us out of this uh, mess where we're uh, putting 
lots of this material to landfill is to simplify the packaging stream. Um, you know, let's have one type of high density of polyethylene that can be recycled or, or one type of uh, low density, that's the, uh, uh, the plastic bags, you know, so that the complex mixtures are simplified. And uh, I think the federal government is uh, helping industry uh, move in that direction as well. Right. So then that way, if it's simplified, then it's all much more recyclable. Yeah. In, in essence, uh, the, the simple answer is yes. At the moment, we've got uh, identity polyethylene with uh, a mixture of different colors and other uh, polymer additives that even though it might say it's a number four or number two or number one on, on the, the, the packaging, it's still made up of uh, other complex materials as well. So we, we really need to streamline it and make sure it's made of one type of polymer which you know would be a monomer rather than multiple different polymers so basically simplifying the uh, the plastic that uh, that goes into a product right how long do you think tony before we reach critical mass with this you said that we have been stockpiling essentially for months now all this recycling recycle material uh, when is this going to become a critical point well, I think we're already at that now. I mean, uh, municipalities were scratching their head uh, in the first week of, well, even ahead of the, the China ban. Uh, but certainly here in uh, Halifax, we were discussing a plastic bag ban uh, last January. We still haven't got one yet, but uh, they were certainly thinking about it because the, in, in Nova Scotia, we can't even uh, landfill plastic bags because it's the only uh, province that has a, uh, a law against uh, landfilling plastic film. So then what are you supposed to do with them? As, well, yeah. So if you speak to uh, each municipality across the country, you'll get a different answer. Um, some municipalities have markets for their material. Others don't. Others are, are even paying to get rid of this material. So it kind of, it just depends on if you have a market. And those that do have a market like to keep it very quiet for fear of another municipality undercutting them and, and getting rid of their material. But but for now, we are landfilling a lot of this material. And I guess in the short term, we're trying to get buyers for this material. But it's so, it's so um, you know, the, the market or the price isn't there for this material because it's not of uh, high enough quality. It's contaminated by and large, and it's so complicated to, to deal with that nobody wants it. So you're saying then essentially like we, we're putting stuff in our recycling bins here and it may very well be ending up in the landfill. Yeah, even when uh, Canada was exporting our material, we were getting recycling rates of between 9 and 13%. It just depends on which jurisdiction you're in, but it's still pretty pathetic. And here we are now talking about go moving towards a zero plastic waste strategy. Well, we're going to have to do a lot of work very quickly in order to make that happen with such low recycling rates. Are you hopeful at all, though, Tony? Because we do talk an awful lot about reducing, right? You, reducing our single-use plastics. That seems to be a worldwide trend right now. Yeah, and, um, you know, what with the uh, the movement against plastic straws last year and, and some jurisdictions, including uh, Victoria, with the ban on plastic bags, I think we're seeing more and more of that across Canada. And I think if we can reduce the amount of material uh, that we package stuff in then that's one step in the right direction but we're going to have to come up with many different solutions to to get to where we need to be and that's going to take a big cultural and behavioral shift um so yeah it's going to be a, a long ride and i think we'll have a lot more conversations like this in the near future oh i think we will listen tony thank you so much for joining us 
Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was fascinating. That's Tony Walker, Assistant Professor at the School for Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University. Well, guess what? There's a busy week coming up in the Victoria area, particularly at the legislature. We're going to learn more about those allegations of misspending by the clerk and sergeant at arms. Uh, that's been a story that's kind of been on the back burner for a little while now. We've been waiting for more details on that. Plus some changes legislatively as well for the provincial government. They want to shape some labor rules in our province. And of course, what are they going to do with the legislature about the price of gas? So to talk about all of these things and more, we're joined now by Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. The circus is back in town today. I, sounds like it. I was saying things are definitely ramping <laughs> up there. Uh, what, what's the deal with the um, the misspending at, with the clerk and sergeant at arms? What's happening with that? Yeah, so uh, it's the final week of investigation by Beverly McLaughlin, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice. She's got a, a deadline of Friday uh, to hand in her report to the three House leaders uh, for all three parties. Uh, I just checked. She hasn't asked for an extension. and doesn't. Nobody really seems to know what she's been doing. Uh, don't get the impression that she's interviewed anybody in the legislature. She may have talked to um, the, the two principals, the former clerk and the former sergeant-at-arms, and perhaps the clerks. I have no idea. But nobody's saying much. Everybody's waiting to see what comes in on Friday. And then, of course, uh, the decision will be from the House leaders. What do they do with this report? Do they instantly make it public? Do they take it home for the weekend and, and release it uh, sometime uh, in days subsequent to that? And what happens if the, the lawyers get involved from the two employees? I mean, who knows where this is headed? So Friday's the deadline. Not sure we're going to get all the info on Friday, but that's when she's going to hand in a report. Okay, that seems kind of vague, though. Like, if nobody knows, like, she hasn't been interviewing everybody, like, what does she do to existing information that she already had? Well, it's 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 a bit of a mystery. Uh, one of the things uh, at play here is there's no rule book that she can consult. Uh, there's no, uh, there are a number of policies that determine spending, but uh, one of the things is that, that did they break the, the rules if the rules weren't really set down in ironclad language? So that's one of the, the challenges challenges she faces. And I'm not sure if she interviewed those two, because, you know, if you're in classic cases, if you're a lawyer and you represent one of those employees, yeah. most lawyers would say, no, you're not talking to my my, uh, my client. And we don't know if she's been able to break through that or not. So everybody's a little bit on tenderhooks over this thing, because we have no idea which way she's going to go on it. Right. That's, boy, that really has flown under the radar, though, hasn't it? Well, it has, and I think every by almost by design, uh, the atmosphere around the legislature has been quite unprecedented because of what's been going on with this. And I think everybody was quite welcome to sort of take a big, deep breath and say, "Okay, it's going to go away for a while. We don't have to worry about this. We don't have to, you know, consume ourselves, tie ourselves in knots, wondering what's going to happen next." A professional's been brought in. That's one thing that was lacking before. You had this unprecedented situation where the speaker was doing investigations uh, and through his special aid and no party was really comfortable with that that this was this was a personnel matter and personnel matters are not are different than a lot of other matters and uh, that's sort of had a cloud over the legislature for some time i think people were comfortable with the fact that a pro like beverly mcgawkin was coming in and she was going to take over here and everybody else could sort of take a back seat and let her do her work Right. Okay. So that's coming up at the end of the week. Let's talk mm-hmm. about what else is going on uh, legislation-wise. What is it with this changing of the labor rules? What's up with that? Yeah. So that starts today with uh, legislation changing the Employment Standards Act. The, the BC Liberals, um, you know, the history of, of labor law in this province is quite fascinating. Uh, the NDP government, Dave Barrett, actually brought in the first labor code in nineteen in the nineteen seventies. Obviously. 
far more uh, sympathetic to, to unions than, than any that had existed any time previous. The social credit government came in under Bill Bennett, didn't change a huge amount of things, but Bill Vanderzam came in and, and really just turned it on its head and brought in a completely anti-labor labor code. Harcourt, the Harcourt government changed it back again. Campbell came in, didn't do a huge number of changes to, to the labor code, but in employment standards, he did weaken some of the protection there uh, for workers and giving more what's called flexibility to employers. And also, controversially, and I have no idea whether this is going to be addressed this afternoon, lowered the age of when people could begin working, uh, to I think to 16 or, or even earlier than that. And that was a bit of an issue in the early part of the, of the first decade of the century. It doesn't seem to be a, much of an issue now, uh, but I don't think the employment standards are going to be the big changes. It's the labor code changes, and we're not sure when we're going to get those. This is, there's been a three-member panel has made a series of recommendations, uh, but reading between the lines of the report, you get the impression they're also recommending don't, go, don't have the pendulum swing hugely one way or a, another. And it didn't really swing in a big way under, under Campbell, but it swung a bit, and I presume it's going to swing back a little more to the labor movement as a result of the NDP's in power. The one thing we're keeping an eye on, I'm not sure we're going to find this out today mm-hmm. at all, whether or not uh, the, the whole secret ballot is, uh, is eliminated when it comes to certification drives for unions. Uh, the NDP wants that uh, gone, uh, but uh, Andrew Weaver and the Greens have said, no, we don't, won't support that. We think a secret ballot is uh, fundamental to democracy. So that's going to be an interesting yeah. fight. Not sure that's going to happen this week, though, but it begins today uh, the process of rewriting the, the labor laws in BC, which is the key, you know, campaign commitment for the NDP. It begins today with some changes to the Employment Standards Act. I guess when we have question period coming back too, we can expect a lot of discussion and back and forth about gas prices. Oh, I would think that's got to be top of mind for uh, the Liberals. I'm sure there's other issues as well, but I mean, the, the Liberals have really seized on this issue, and I think they're having some success with it about demanding that the government take some action. Even though the NDP is discovering now that they're in government, it's a lot harder to find the answers to this thing when they were in opposition. Our friend Mike Smith has been um, gleefully tweeting old videos of John Horgan in the the legislature in Hansard when he was in opposition, when he had a lot more hair and it wasn't as gray as it is now, uh, demanding that the government take action on on gas prices, demanding they lower uh, gas gas taxes, Mm -hmm. uh, that they begin looking at regulation, all things that he now rejects as the premier. So uh, Smitty's been having some fun pointing out uh, what you say in opposition doesn't necessarily mean what comes true in government. And I, I would be very surprised if the Liberals didn't try to jump on that issue today. There's no easy, I think Horgan's made it clear, there's no easy fix here. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's a nice populist issue for, for the Liberals yeah. to try to take hold of. And I wonder, do you think they're gaining some traction? Are they getting some traction by doing this? I think there's always going to be frustration at the pump when people look at their, their, the bill and go, whoa, and they're automatically, I think, the default position is blame the government. And because the government does take 35 cents a liter from you uh, for various taxes, which, you know, go to build transit and transit lines. Um, it's not like it, it disappears into the ether. Um, the money's used for something. But uh, people are now focusing, I think, having their attentions brought to the fact that the number, the amount of taxes you pay on your liter of gas is noticeable now. And it's uh, there's anger at the pumps, and I think the Liberals are probably benefiting from this. And I detect a bit of, not desperation on John Horgan and NDP's uh, Part, but certainly some a little apprehension because just born in the fact he keeps changing his position. At first, yeah. he, he seemed to suggest maybe there's some taxation relief. 
next day, nope, that's not going to happen. Then he suggested that uh, there should be regulation, and then he realized, nope, that's not going to happen. I discovered we can't really do that. Then he suggested a refinery be built, and then the next day, no, nope, uh, maybe it should be built in Alberta. Uh, all of which tells me there's no real game plan of that the possessing that the NDP possesses on this issue. And I also find it somewhat ironic that a party that has got a fairly bold and aggressive uh, plan to fight climate change would be advocating building yet another right. refinery to process even more fossil fuels. Those two don't add up. I saw that, people pointing that out, and I thought, you know, that's a very, very good point. Uh, are they very sensitive, though, I guess, Keith, to any issue having to do with affordability? Because after all, yep. that is what tipped that last election. Exactly. They ran on that issue, and they, that's why they're in power, and that's why things like this can get away from them. The price of gas is a, a big part of every uh, many, many people's household budget. And now it's getting to the point where you're really noticing a uh, the the boost in price that you're paying is significantly higher for many people than it was just a few weeks ago. And that goes to the heart of the affordability issue. And I think the Liberals will continue to try to exploit that. Not that the Liberals have any answers here either. I do find it ironic that the so-called free enterprise party is demanding that the government step in and, and interfere with the marketplace, which is another yeah. irony on this story as well. But affordability is a nice issue to run on, but if you can't deliver it, it can come back to bite you. Sure can. Well, you're going to have a fun week. All right. It's gonna, it's going to be lively. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. All right, Zimmy, take that, care. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, giving us a preview of what is ahead this week in Victoria because they're all back at work. You know, a little while ago, we were talking with Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislature Bureau Chief, about how the topic of gas prices is likely to be a pretty hot one in Victoria this week. The opposition will definitely be looking to score some points on this because the BC Liberals have been calling on the NDP government to provide some relief at the pumps. Uh, meanwhile, you've got this report out from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Their senior economist is Mark Lee, and he appeared on the CKNW John McComb show today. And during that appearance, he said, it is time for BC to follow the maritime provinces and regulate gas prices, he said, to end the gouging. Uh, That's what he referred to it as, this has caused gas prices in Metro Vancouver to skyrocket. But how? Like, how do you regulate the price? Well, this is what Mark Lee had to say. The main challenge is around um, refining. We translate crude into uh, refined uh, fuel products like gasoline and diesel. And that's where we're seeing the abnormally high uh, margins going to that sector of, of the economy. Uh, so they're you know, much higher than they were historically in, uh, in Vancouver uh, by about 20 to 30 cents per liter. And they're much higher by about the same amount compared to other major cities in Canada, Calgary or Toronto uh, or Montreal. So um, you would ha- to, in order to regulate that, you would basically put in, be putting restrictions on the amount of uh, excess profits uh, that can be taken by uh, refining industries. All right, that's Mark Lee from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. But is that plausible? Like, would that actually work? Well, let's talk to somebody who thinks there's more than a few holes in that proposal. Blair King is an environmental scientist, and he says he's found some flaws with the CCPA's idea, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Blair, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you had some thoughts on this CCPA proposal. Is it not possible, do you think, to regulate gas prices? Well, no. Reasonably speaking, they they could regulate gas prices as long as they said we will make them very high. If the intention is to lower gas prices, then of course they can't regulate gas prices because we don't we don't control the supply. And if you don't have control over supply, then then saying we won't we won't 
change, allow a change in price means you either have to deal with demand or you have to pay a high price. Is there any way, do you think, for the government? I know there's a lot of, it's been very politicized right now. Is there any way for a government to have a say uh, in lowering a gas price? Gas is a fungible resource that is available from around the world, but it's available at a price. If you, right now, we buy our excess supply, the necessary supply from the Puget Sound. The Puget Sound has other buyers. If we say we won't pay your price, they say, fine, we'll sell it to Oregon and we don't get the gasoline. So the answer is we can certainly say we won't pay the price, but if we don't pay the price, we don't get the gas. Right. So essentially, there's still too many customers out there. Well, there's too many customers for the supply that's out there. We have the west coast of North America is a, is an integrated market from Alaska to California. And if we don't buy it from uh, from them, it'll go to the other parts of the market. There's lots of people who are looking for gasoline, and we are only one of the buyers. Okay, so then how do we increase the supply? You increase the supply by increasing the supply. You either make a bigger pipe to allow material to come from uh, more material to come from Alberta, or you bring it in by sea. But those are really the only two options on the on the west coast of British Columbia. It's interesting, though, no, no, isn't it, Blair? Because here we have been arguing and talking and debating about the pipeline issue for the last five years, and now the thing that might sway some people's opinion is how high the gas prices are. Yeah, which it's ironic because the reason we have the carbon tax is to discourage uh, gasoline use and to encourage alternatives. But uh, that, if your if your policy perspective is you want to reduce gasoline use, then raising prices is really the approach you should be looking at. So, will building more pipelines, will the Trans Mountain pipeline, will that help this problem? Absolutely. The the project as designed is supposed to there is supposed to get the heavy fuel out of the existing pipeline and in doing so will expand the capacity substantially on the existing pipeline with the all that heavy fuel going to the second pipeline. By doing that it would address the shortage by allowing all that extra fuel that Alberta has. Alberta has a glut of both gasoline and diesel and they just can't can't get it to us because there's a mountain in the way, a set of mountains in the way. Right. But the thing is, that could be years away, though, couldn't it, Blair? Like by the time this thing is built and the pipeline up and running. So you're talking about supply increase that's years away. And by then, people might have decided to do something else like buy electric cars. Well, that's certainly an option. And the if you're an, an economist and you want us to get people off gasoline and onto EVs, then this is the way to do it. Two dollar uh, one seventy five to two dollar gasoline will make people think twice about uh, taking that extra ride and may put them on the bus or get them to buy an EV. Do you think it's changing people's minds right now with the way prices are? Well, I certainly know that people are taking taking notice of the gas prices and making dis- different decisions than they did if when gas was a dollar a liter uh they won't they we are as a family we're saying okay we aren't going to do that extra trip to the interior to see our sister-in-law we'll spend that time on the coast here and that's that foregone trip will reduce carbon emissions by that much gasoline and will and that's essentially the point of raising the price of gasoline. Right. So what do you think then when you hear about all this becoming so political and people saying, oh, politicians need to lower the price? 
Well, it, the, the simple answer is why are you, what, what is the purpose of the, of the carbon tax? And if the, if the increased price meets your governmental policy objectives, then what are you complaining about? The challenge is when you say my policy is to raise gas prices, but I don't want to raise them too high or too quickly because that hurts people. Uh, and so what we need to look at is how do you protect if you're a government, how do you yeah. protect the poorest from these price fluctuations while allowing the people who can afford it to come up with alternatives and therefore reduce overall consumption? Interesting topic. Blair, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that part of the discussion. That's Blair King, environmental scientist based in Langley. has been very active in the discussions and the debate uh, surrounding pipelines here in B.C. We are going to talk about that episode last night, but don't worry. We're not talking about in terms of spoilers. I know there was a lot of stuff that happened. People were all excited talking about it and debating it at work today. Uh, But what we're going to talk about is how dark the episode was. Not in terms of content, but in the actual literal sense. I've read stories this morning and people, in fact, our producer Alan was one of them, trying to figure out the brightness on the TV to try to make it brighter so they could actually see what was going on. You're not alone if you felt like that. Last night's episode, especially the first half, was confusing for a lot of people out there. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Chris Jenselowitz, who's a global news entertainment editor. Hi, Chris. Hello, how's it going? It's good, thank you. Have you heard a lot of complaints about this problem? <laughs> you know, honestly, it's it's been going on all day. Uh, if you're on Twitter at all or on any other social media, you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of complaints. Uh, you know, I thought I was the only one. I'm watching it, and uh, you know, I'm squinting. I'm like, <laughs> is it just me? <laughs> is this is this HBO Canada? What's going on here? I, I just had no idea. And you know, we adjusted the brightness and didn't really help, turned off the lights, didn't really help. Uh, so I, I, it all came down to actually how it was displayed, I guess, on the TV. I guess so. But with so many people complaining about this, obviously mm-hmm. there was a very conscious choice by the Game of Thrones people to make this a, like a dark episode. Why is that? Yeah. So, you know, the possibilities are, are really endless. No one's really gotten confirmation from HBO or any of the producers or directors saying, yeah, you know, this was a deliberate thing. I think on some level it did add to the mystique of the episode, you know, without spoiling. Obviously, everyone knows there's a huge battle this episode, uh, and it takes place in, in at night, uh, so it's very, very dark. And so I think, you know, partially it added to that feeling of what is going to come out of the darkness, what is going to emerge from the shadow. We don't know. And so it made it a little bit more suspenseful. But unfortunately, hand-in-hand hand with that comes this frustration of, like, who was that? And, and it's a fast-moving <laughs> battle, so you don't even know, really. You know, some guy with a beard hits another guy with a beard, and you're like, well... Who was that guy with the beard? Because they all kind of look similar, right? That is so true because so, uh, they wear the same kind of outfits. Like everybody's dressed yeah. alike on that show. But here, Chris, yeah. I'm like I'm a very skeptical person on this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so my theory was that they really did this to save money on special effects. Because when you do the stuff <laughs> in the dark like that, it doesn't like you know what? Like you can get away with not having all the super duper special effects. And, you know, it's possible. Um, I I did a little bit of tech research this morning and read some stuff about how, you know, the switch to high def and uh, it's a lot easier to shoot on digital. But unfortunately, what happens when you do that is, you know, I'm not an expert. So, you know, if I'm wrong, forgive me, tech files. But, um, you know, if you're shooting something in digital, what happens is, unfortunately, the side effect is that the quality is a little lesser. It's a little more grainy, especially when you're shooting in low light. 
Um, so I found that out this morning. And so I think ultimately that might be what had happened uh, while they were shooting. This is, everything's very fast again, right? Right. So, this is the most expensive TV show ever made, right? Isn't it something like $15 million per episode? Yeah, it's a massive budget, you know, and they shoot internationally too. I believe this was shot in Ireland. I'm not 100% again, um, but I believe that it was shot in Ireland. And uh, yeah, you know, each each of these cast members gets paid a million, you know, however many dollars. And uh, this shoot itself took, I think it was something like 20-something days. Just for this just for episode. This battle, just for the battle alone. Not even not even just the episode, the whole battle. Um, so yeah, this is a, a really Crazy. big thing. So who knows, you know, ultimately, I, we don't know what the cause was. All I know is that people were a little displeased. No <laughs> kidding. So is it going to be like this? Like, is this something that people should be aware of for future episodes, even though there's what, three left, something like that? There's three left, uh, three fairly large, long episodes. Um, I'm not sure there's going to probably be at least one other battle, I'm assuming. Uh, I have no inside knowledge whatsoever. Um, but uh, hopefully uh, some scenes coming coming up next take place in, in the day. <laughs> we would hope so. <laughs> so we hope you, men- you mentioned the length, though. Like last night was a long episode, and the rest mm-hmm. of them are all going to be very long episodes, aren't they? Correct. So last night was actually the longest of these final six. So it was. It came in at about one hour, 25 minutes. Uh, the next ones will be roughly the same, probably about 120, 115 uh, so yeah, they're not going to be as long as last night's, but, uh, they'll be pretty close. That's like a movie every week. Yeah. It's like a feature film. Uh, and then, you know, the quality is, is, is normally very astounding. So this was a bit of a shocker and, you know, it's not the first series where this has happened. There's been other series where people have complained, uh, about the darkness and about how they trap the brightness. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's not the first time and probably won't be the last. No, I guess not. Okay. Are people doing well with the spoilers as well, Chris? Cause I know that's always a big deal with game of thrones. Um, well, you know, it's been, um, everyone's talking about it at work. Like you said, uh, it's a total water cooler. Everyone, it's like the big moments from last night. Uh, I've had people covering their ears and, and saying, la, 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 because they don't want to hear anything. <laughs> uh, you know, you got to, you got to really maintain though. You have to watch it at the right time. You got to watch when everyone else is watching. You pretty much have to stay off social media if you haven't seen it because there are spoilers everywhere. You, you cannot avoid it. Um, so my suggestion would be if you're a Game of Thrones watcher, I would watch it live um, just to spare yourself. You know what? I think that's very good advice. Listen, Chris, thank mm-hmm. you so much. Anytime. That is Chris Cencello. It's our Global News Entertainment Editor with some advice for Game of Thrones fans. Watch it live. And I know some people love to tape it and watch it later, but as he's pointed out, these final three episodes are go- going to have lots of spoilers in them. And you just know that somebody is going to try, you know, put it out there or talk about it and you're going to inadvertently hear something. So yeah, if you can watch it live, that's good advice. Now, this happens to everybody, right? You're sleeping in the middle of the night, you wake up, you have no idea what time it is, so you have to check. I like to know because then I like to mentally know how many more hours of sleep I have before I actually have to get out of bed. I, though, apparently am one of the very few people left in this world who still have a clock radio next to the bed. It sounds like the majority of people out there have their cell phone. And of course, then you have to pick it up, you have to press a button, you have to see what time it is, and then you put it down again. And I guess this was a problem in the Zuckerberg household as well as in Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Uh, he has posted on Instagram to demonstrate what he has done uh, to help his wife, Priscilla. He has built her a wooden sleep box. And apparently it's because she gets stressed when she can't figure out what time it is or trying to figure out how much time she has left to sleep before their two daughters usually wake up, which is between 6 and 7 a.m. So he built this sleep box that has a very faint 
kind of glowing light underneath at the bottom of the box there. The box will kind of light up like that between 6 and 7 a.m. So it's it won't wake it won't really wake anybody up, but it's visible enough apparently to alert her to the time if she's awake so she knows that one of them should then go and check on the kids. Now, Mark Zuckerberg says that this has been great for his wife, that she's now able to sleep better at night because she has this very restful sleep box. Man, sure made me wonder, like, really? Is that what you need? I understand, like, not checking on your phone, but is a sleep box really something that could help us sleep better? Well, we wanted to talk more about this. So joining us now is Professor Wendy Hall from the UBC School of Nursing. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Simi. It's an interesting topic. It is an interesting topic as well. I guess sleep problems are still a very big issue for us, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're an issue for many, many people. I think something like 35 or 40% of Americans report um, not getting enough sleep at night. So I haven't seen too many Canadian stats. But What is the ideal uh, number of hours to sleep at night? Well, it depends on your age and stage of development. But for adults, they recommend that we get between seven and eight hours of sleep. And do you think most people get that? No. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think that is? Oh, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, people delay going to bed at night often because they've got busy days and they're trying to get those last chores done before bedtime. Sometimes people um, are very active before bed and are on screens or they're uh, having really major physical exercise or um, they're worrying about something that they need to do for the next day. So they go to bed, but it can take them a long time to get to sleep. So they might be in bed by 10 o'clock, but they're not asleep until 11. And then often people cut their time the next morning and, and get up early because maybe they've got things they have to do before they go to work or or they feel that they can catch up on things in the morning. And you just can't catch up on sleep, can you? No, you don't. And what does this do to our bodies if we don't get enough sleep? Well, basically, there's all kinds of research now that suggests that it has major negative repercussions. So it can it affects memory, it affects learning for adults too, not just for young people. We're all learning over the course of our lives and we need to uh, process those memories. It, it affects our curiosity and our creativity. People who get less REM sleep, that's the sleep that normally you have more of toward the morning. Um, that's when you have your sort of creative thinking about maybe something you've learned that day or a problem you're trying to solve. It affects uh, blood pressure, it affects heart health, it affects obesity. Yeah. Everything, <laughs> everything essentially. And yet we don't take it seriously enough, though, do we? Like, do we, do we, we don't, I don't often hear people say that, oh, I have to make sure I get X number of hours per night. No, you're more likely to hear people bragging about how little sleep they can survive on. And yeah. that's the problem because uh, survival is, <laughs> is a relative term. So you, you may be managing to get through the next day, kind of, but it's taking a toll on your body if you're getting less sleep than you need. Right. I tend to think that the cell phone thing is a big issue here too, right? Because I guess Mark Zuckerberg built this box for his wife because every time she checked the time, she was picking up her phone so that she could see the time. That would seem very disruptive to me. Yes, it is very disruptive. I liked your comment about having a clock radio in your bedroom. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't have a clock radio, but I've got uh, an alarm clock where if you push down on one side of it, there it'll highlight the 
uh, face of the clock so you can see what time it is. But you still have to press down. Yeah, but, you know, it's not like picking your phone up and pressing down. I know exactly where it is beside the bed, and I can just move my hand over and go click and see the time and then let go, and that's done. See, I don't even have to do that, though, Professor Hall. I just have to you open. You can just look at it. I just kind of like half open one eye and it tells me what time it is. Have, yeah. have we let technology, do you think, dictate too much of that part of our sleep process? Well, we certainly don't want to be looking at screens a lot during the night because we know screens emit blue light and that affects um, our sleep. And, uh, it, and if we're getting big bursts of light during the night, it can kind of reset our circadian rhythm because our, our bodies can be thinking, oh, it must be daytime, it's not nighttime. But also I've found uh, from having conversations with people and doing reading that even having a cell phone in your bedroom, even if you put it on um, silence so you can't hear those little messages dinging as they come in or whatever, um, people are still aware it's there and that can interfere with their sleep because it, on a subliminal level, they're thinking about their cell phone. Right. And as somebody else was pointing out, they called into our show earlier and they said, um, what happens is that then they, they see something else that came in when they're checking that, oh, a text came in, oh, an email yeah. came in. And then all of a sudden your brain is up and running. Yeah, exactly. So those are things we don't recommend in terms of making your brain get up and running. We recommend that if you do wake up in the middle of the night, okay, I, I myself, I also checked the time because I, I do want to know how much yeah. sleep I've got left. But um, but they recommend that, you know, you try and go right back to sleep. And if you can't, after 20 minutes, you know, you, you put on low light and read a really boring book. I, I was reading something that said you could read the manual for your washing machine <laughs> or something um, so that you can just lull yourself back to sleep and, and then just, you know, head back into dreamland. So, and, you know, if you wake up and, and you're worried about the time, like it sounds like Mark Zuckerberg's wife was worried that she didn't have enough time left before the children got up. Right. You can do meditation. You can try and you know, make your muscles tighten your body and then relax them. Um, there are, you can, you know, get, write a little list, not on your cell phone, but, you know, <laughs> yes. if, the, if you're lying there and you're worried about, oh, I've got this to do and that to do and that to do and how am I going to get it all done? You can just, just hand write a little list and put that down. And yeah. just say, okay, I've done that. I can go to sleep now and forget about that. Is using a gentle light the way he designed that sleep box, is that a better way to wake up in the morning than an alarm? I don't know. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how that light worked because I'm, are you saying that it came on between six and seven? Like, I guess it kind of gently dimmed between six and seven. So it got a little bit, so that it got, it got its brightest between six and seven a.m. So then she would know that's the hour that the kids usually wake up and it's time to be waking up. Oh, I see. Well, I don't really recommend having sources of light in your bedroom like that. So maybe that's all they could do to try and figure out how to help her because she, she was looking at her cell phone all the time. And that's certainly preferable to looking at your cell phone. But, um, and why don't you recommend having yeah. light sources like that? Well, because, you know, I don't know what he did to the light source. He may have, screw- sometimes you can put um, filters on light sources so you can screen out a lot of the blue light. So he might have done that. So that it, when she looked at that light to see is it bright or is it dim, she wasn't getting exposed to blue light. But if you're not doing things like that, then you are getting exposed to blue light if you've got some kind of a screen in there or something. Right. This is a very small kind of box that he's got there. And I just thought, 
All right. This seems like we're inventing things that perhaps um, we didn't need even 15, 20 years ago. No, it's true. We are. Are we getting worse at our sleeping habits, do you think, from before we had all this technology? I think so. I think it's had a really negative effect on people's sleep. I mean, take, for example, BC, where they said, you know, they're going to give a tsunami alert on people's cell phones. So what does that mean? If, if it's happening in the middle of the night, it means you have to have your cell phone in your bedroom. Oh, that's so true. Little things like that make us totally dependent on having that thing sitting there. Yeah. You got yeah. it. All right, Professor Hall, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Simi, for your interest. Oh, as always, we love talking about sleep. That is Professor Wendy Hall, UBC School of Nursing.